With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hi, hello there. Welcome to the first conversation episode of our new and epic series on ancient Sparta and the Spartan Mirage. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv, the one who likes to talk about the ancient world, just like quite a bit. You know, I'm a fan. 
Today, I am super pumped to bring you this, the first of the conversations surrounding ancient Sparta. I spoke with Dr. Maria Pretzler, who's a professor of classics, but specializes not only in mythology, but also Pausanias and the Peloponnese, i.e. she was the perfect person for me to speak to about not only Spartan culture and history and mythology, but that of the wider Peloponnese. Of course, Sparta was like the top dog in that peninsula for a large part of Greek history, certainly the period that we are most concerned with when it comes to this series. And because one of our bigger issues when it comes to learning about Sparta as a place, and particularly what their own customs, etc. were, is the lack of actually Spartan sources, let alone the secretive nature of them as a people, Pausanias then becomes super helpful. Now, many of you might have noticed that I have been talking about Pausanias a lot more often in the past few months, and that's because of this conversation that I had with Maria. We recorded it back in the summer, so I've had a few months now to like really ruminate on why Pausanias is so interesting and to start using him more as a source. Because Pausanias was a very late writer in the grand scheme of Greece, like he was writing when they were a part of the Roman Empire. But what makes him so interesting and insightful and really unique and important is how he went about his writing. He's considered a travel writer, and essentially what he did was travel around Greece, region by region, and speak with the people of those areas. Everyday people who had very personal insights into where they come from, their customs, history, mythology, etc. But what he also gave us was actual descriptions of regions, buildings, temples, landscapes. So many things that are otherwise lost to us now just due to the amount of time that's passed. So much of what we know about ancient buildings and like maybe what was depicted on them, what was in like painted on them or in the, the statues, so much of what we know about things like that are because Pausanias saw it and wrote it down. Like, how interesting is that? Anyway, he's fascinating, and it was this conversation with Maria that really emphasized that to me. But, uh, well, we also talked for almost two hours, so I won't keep you more with the introduction. Let's get right in. Conversations Pausanias in the Peloponnese, Spartan myth and culture with Dr. Maria Pretzler. So yeah, why don't you start by just telling me a bit about like what you kind of specialize in? It sounds like kind of a lot of Pausanias, certainly, um, but any kind of introduction to yourself that, that you want to give for my listeners? Right. Well, um, hello, I'm Maria Pretzler, and I'm at Swansea University teaching ancient history. And my research interest has been the Peloponnese for a very long time, and I work on various aspects of this. And actually, my interest in the small cities of the Peloponnese brought me to Pausanias, the travel writer of uh, the second century AD, who describes a large chunk of mainland Greece. And so I worked on him for a while, particularly on his description of Arcadia, which is book eight, and, the, and also the center of the Peloponnese. But then afterwards, I went back to really looking at the history of the region. So at the moment, I'm working 
on a lengthy book project on the Peloponnesian League, and that is Sparta's alliance, which started in the Archaic period, sometimes before the Persian Wars, and went on into the 4th century, and was one of the really important power blocks of classical Greek history. And so with that, of course, I'm thinking about Sparta, and I'm thinking a lot more about myth than you'd think of mm. someone who is actually talking about history and political history, because actually the myths in Greece parallel the actual events. So you really need to know how people try to explain their relationships, special events, um, power relations to themselves, and they often do that through myth. So myth is a, a subject that's very close to my heart, actually. Good. I mean, me too, if that's not <laughs> obvious. <laughs> One of my favorite things to talk about lately, just, you know, I, I've been doing this podcast for five years now, so I've gotten pretty deep into the, I, like, I'm not an academic, but into the more academic nature of it, like less about the stories themselves and more about understanding like the why and behind the stories and the intention and everything. So I very recently had to kind of write something out explaining how myth is is history. Like I, we think of it as storytelling now, we think of it as narratives fiction now, but it is history and like trying to talk to somebody who is you know is is not familiar with that that nature mm -hmm. and trying to explain that because it it is so inextricably tied to the history of this region but you know at the same time we have these like modern ideas of what myths are and and the fiction of it comes out so it is so interesting looking at those the ways that it that interacts um i'm fascinated by the peloponnesian league too like i history is is rarely my thing but i'm more and more diving into it um obviously because it ties so completely to mytho myth, myth oh, i can't say the word mythology now <laughs> it ties so perfectly into mythology and so more and more history just like i just want to know uh everything essentially <laughs> um but so sparta is is such an interesting idea the whole intention of this project I'm doing on Sparta is to kind of to to look at Sparta as a place a, as a culture and and its mytho mythology um but also to specifically look at it beyond the ideas of it that exist now in the modern sense the, the this you know notion of a completely militaristic society that has almost nothing else going on for them like I want to kind of break that while also looking at Sparta generally so I am Basically, I would love you to talk about anything here, but to kind of start it off, um, I'm fascinated by Spartan mythology because it doesn't, I know we don't have a lot that comes from Sparta itself, so it's often kind of hard to know what what was actually happening there versus what people are saying happened there. Um, but Spartan mythology, like, is is there a lot of regional mythology there that, that like, is, is particularly different or interesting compared to the wider Greek mythology canon? Oh, I suppose canon is the wrong word. There is no mythology canon, but still. <laughs> well, you could answer this question in two ways. Um, I mean, in one way, I mean, qualitatively, are Spartan myths, do they look very different from other Greek myths? I don't think so. I mean, generally, each Greek community has its own set of myths, and Sparta has its own set of stories about its past which somehow explain to the outside world but also to themselves who they are and where they come from and very importantly i think myths local myths often 
answer why questions. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why is our society as it is? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Sparta does that like any other police would do. So qualitatively speaking, not that different. Also, I would say they are not particularly obsessive with war. Mm-hmm. Um, in my, I mean, I teach a myth module and my students all deal with different regions and the people who pick Sparta mm-hmm. often expect all these stories about warfare and heroism. I, and often are quite disappointed because that's not what it is. I mean, of course, there are wars in their stories. There are heroes, military heroes just as well, but I would say not more than elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But of course, nevertheless, and that's perhaps the second part of the answer. Yes, Sparta does have unique myths like every other place does. Uh, but also because quite a few of the local myths we have from late source, and that's Pausanias, mm-hmm. it is already kind of characterized by the fame of Sparta. And perhaps right. that's makes it even more surprising that it's not all about war. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, by the Roman period, there was this notion of the warrior society of Sparta. We see that in Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus, particularly, mm-hmm. a society bent on war and defined by war. So that's not what it is. But it seems certainly the version of their stories that Pausanias gives us is very closely tied to all sorts of famous aspects of literature, and particularly the Homeric epics. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of Lots of stories where you can say, yes, I know this bit of the Iliad and here is the Spartan part of it. Mm-hmm. So we have various people turning up. I mean, of course, there's Menelaus and, and Helen anyway, and those are famous stories. But Odysseus plays quite a role hmm. because, of course, there's the story that he found his wife Penelope in Sparta. So we get we get some of some of our, our connections to that. Um, so... Sparta is kind of dining out on its fame at that point. Now, just to say, I mean, because you mentioned so many of Spartan stories aren't told by Spartans, I think that's right. Although I think certainly my take on Pausanias and, uh, is that he really went to these places and talked to people. And there are many places where you can see that what he is recording is probably what pe- people told him. Mm-hmm. So it's late but local. Um but the Spartans clearly respond to what outsiders want to hear to an mm. extent. So, but what's interesting is we get lots of little details. Here's a little shrine and here is another story attached to this temple and so on. So you get a nice kind of body of stories. Mm-hmm. And there are quite a few obscure ones that I don't, don't think we get anywhere else in quite that detail. So I think that's quite important. But, but at any rate... Um, the warrior society of Sparta, I mean, the, the biggest sort of story arc that goes with that is actually the story of Lycurgus. Mm-hmm. And Lycurgus, the lawgiver of Sparta. And I think on the whole, people don't think that that's um, exactly what we call mythology. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I think Lycurgus probably didn't exist, or if someone, if an important politician named Lycurgus existed, he certainly didn't do all the things that are attached to his name. That's pretty clear. The story grows. He becomes more and more the answer to the question, why are the Spartans so weird? (laughs) And, you know, the Spartans are so weird because there was a lawgiver, Lycurgus, who gave them this constitution and this way of life. 
that made them the strongest state in the Peloponnese. I mean, then, and, and then you get all the stories about selecting the children at birth mm-hmm. and the education system and all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is that seems to be a kind of political legend that develops. I mean, as the Spartans develop their society that becomes more and more different from the rest of the Greeks, the story grows with it, it seems. But yeah, that's not quite myth. I mean, it's quite it's quite odd because I think the Greeks had a sense of a difference between myth and history. They mm-hmm. sort of merge myth into history, but nevertheless, they have a sense of that. And for them, like Kyrgyz isn't quite in quite that category. Mm-hmm. It's not a story that has a lot of sort of supernatural elements. I mean, for them, they tell the story as a historical one. And of course, Plutarch wrote wrote a biography of Lycurgus. Mm-hmm. I mean, it starts off with saying, I know absolutely nothing about this man and you can date <laughs> him into several different centuries, but here is my biography of Lycurgus. So, so it, you know, and he wouldn't write, I mean, he did write a biography of Romulus as well. And so, Theseus. So. And Theseus. <laughs> so, I mean, he does actually switch, but I think there is, for him as for us, Lycurgus is kind of in between. Mm-hmm. Even in Theseus, so, he talks a lot about how he's like, I think these things happened and I think these things are mythology. So yeah, like even in that one where like we would say now that Theseus is certainly like an entirely mythological character, but he did seem to like to see the difference in what he's talking about Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. And and like Kyrgyz is sort of a bit closer. So Mm -hmm. we know there's lots of historical detail we we don't have, Plutarch says. We can't pin him down in terms of dates and whatever. But on the whole, he... You know, he thinks of him as an actual person who lived in a historical period, mm-hmm. um, and which you can grasp. And where you know you don't have gods walking on earth, and you know they don't—he doesn't meet Heracles or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's firmly. I mean, I think the boundary, in a way, for them tends to be the Trojan War. And, you know, I mean, the Trojan War in itself is a historical event for them. Anything afterwards and the further, you know, every generation down from the Trojan War gets more and more historical. And yeah. Lycurgus is somewhere there. So so I think, but in any case, so you've got this name. Mm-hmm. Who is connected to uh, to all the things that make the Spartans so Spartan? And that's really where you get the whole war stories. But... The interesting thing is in the kind of mythological uh, accounts. So one might say, okay, I mean, actually, warlike Sparta, as we know it from 300 or whatever, actually is connected to that. So if mm-hmm. one looks at Plutarch's life of Lycurgus, it sets it all out. And of course, Frank Miller, in a way, used some of these accounts to build mm-hmm. his Sparta. I mean, most of what he's doing is, is using Herodotus very closely, actually. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's he's building on that legend that that Plutarch is is sort of putting together or perhaps just repeating for us. I mean, it's quite clear by his time that's there. Mm-hmm. But so in a way, it's almost the explanation of why are the Spartans so weird or why are they so warlike is kind of farmed out to Lycurgus post Trojan War into an area that's not doesn't quite work like myth. And so the Spartan myths perhaps work quite a bit differently. Um, and that's also, I, I, I find that quite fascinating because, you know, one wonders how late that development actually is. I mean, I think by now most people think that the Spartans became 
so weird, probably at some point in the 7th and 6th century. It, expl- it, it develops slowly mm-hmm. um, as this society becomes more unequal and, you know, there's, a, there's an elite that takes on the aristocratic lifestyle uh, based on all the wealth they've got from their conquests and, and somehow this whole society gets organized around these ideals. Mm-hmm. But it's a slow process and the stories grow at that point. But at the same time, they already have a mythical past, of course, mm-hmm. that focuses very much on Menelaus and Helen. And Heracles, of course, is mm-hmm. is a really important character in the story as well. Uh, Tyndareus, of course, uh, father of Helen and the Dioscuri. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then, of course, well, Menelaus and Agamemnon and then Orestes is very important. So, So mm-hmm. that's an important core of the story. And we also get the usual foundation stories that go all the way back. Again, very hard to say how old these are. I mean, every by the time Pausanias comes around, every city has an eponymous hero and founders and so on. And of course, in Sparta, that mm-hmm. happens as well. But I have to say the really earliest founding stories that give the names to everything are really quite generic. I mean, mm. it's just, you've got, I can't quite remember now, I think it's, Sparta, the daughter of Eurotus, who marries Lacedaemon. So you've got the river, you've got the name of the region, you've got, got the, you know, and it's, and I'm sure you've seen these kind of generic stories about the eponymous heroes and mm-hmm. heroines who give names to to everything that's important. Um, Pausania certainly starts off his book three with, with just going through the motions and telling us all of this uh, before he gets to the more important stuff. I guess I've been doing this backwards. (laughs) But in any case, so, yeah, we've got got a set of myths which are typical, but which don't draw typical Sparta. And we've got the later story of Lycurgus, later in terms of development, but also in terms of how they thought about it, Mm -hmm. um, which really defines their society. And and I think we have to think of of either sort of split into these two parts, I think. I was speaking, um, I've spoken with a couple of other people in, in preparation for this series. And, and one thing that kind of stood out to me in, in discussing the, the actual military side of it um, is how it kind of seems like that, that kind of aspect of their history, that transformation just like happens at Thermopylae. So it's not like they had this culture before Thermopylae and they didn't necessarily have it after either, but the myth around them as these incredible warriors and things starts obviously after the 300 and Thermopylae and all of this, and then kind of goes from there. And so somebody like Plutarch, who's writing so much later, but also so at like after a point where so much about the myth of them after Thermopylae has been able to grow and become this big thing and, and sort of, so he's almost writing a history that's sort of explaining how they, you know, became like that, but what he's seeing is already something that had already been mythologized, you know, during the wars and everything that happened afterwards. So it's kind of interesting to see it with that kind of, I don't know if it's any kind of clear defined split, obviously nothing really can be, it's, you know, we're talking history and mythology, but it it is interesting to kind of see where it, where the story kind of grew, even if, even if their, their culture didn't necessarily change after, but these these mythologized ideas about their culture changed and then just kind of kept spiraling almost. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I like the idea of that sort of split of Thermopylae. It's absolutely mm-hmm. clear. That's a myth-making moment. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, Pausanias actually has, saw the grave of Leonidas in mm. in Sparta and the story that they brought the bones back. And there are lots of other stories of heroes whose bones get brought somewhere and so on. Mm-hmm. So Leonidas is really being treated as a as a heroic figure in, in the sense of mythical hero. Mm-hmm. And and clearly by the time you know in the the Roman imperial period when tourists came to Sparta this mm-hmm. was a, this was something people wanted to see mm-hmm. and but the myth making starts probably in the years after the Persian Wars we know the Spartans had inscriptions set up which already overplayed the importance of Thermopylae and so on I mean that's quite clear I mean I think the cut is probably not quite so extreme. Mm-hmm. I assume that the Spartans were a bit different from other Greeks, less different than one might think. But nevertheless, I mean, even their extreme wealth, I mean, I think that the, this society that has a fairly small elite, I mean, in a way, they are very large elite because it's a few thousand people who, who managed to live the lifestyle of extremely rich Greeks, mm-hmm. where, you know, a small middle size or middle-sized city might have whatever 10 families like that sparta has a few thousand families like this mm-hmm. and they increasingly become more and more um exclusive of course that elite then becomes smaller till it's down to a few hundred but i think that must have set in earlier than thermopylae so there is mm-hmm. something different about the spartans but I think it is absolutely right that they are not people whose whole lives are constantly dedicated to making war. Mm-hmm. In some ways, they're brilliant diplomats and they avoid war whenever they can and they're really good at it. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, and Thermopylae may well be a turning point, they are the people who play on their reputation so that they don't need to go to war. I mean, people mm-hmm. don't want to fight the Spartans because they're really, really scary. And they're scary because everyone believes the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and the other thing is, if the Spartans go to war, they don't necessarily win because they are brilliant warriors. They win because they turn up with <laughs> many more people than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that's not because, I mean, they themselves have got about, whatever, 8,000 or so, which is about a bit less than Athens, which can turn up 9,000 if they need to. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they bring their allies, allies along, they can turn up with 15,000, 20,000 if they need to. And that's bigger than anyone else in Greece. And the numbers are probably a lot more important than, you know, um, ritualized hair combing before the battle or whatever, you know. <laughs> I mean, any of this or even, you know, the fact that they've been brought up to be extremely good at maneuvering in the battle line. I mean, it plays a little bit of a role. But if you've got a third more people in the battle line than the other side, you are likely to win, whether your warriors are brilliant or not. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, one of my big arguments about the Peloponnese is actually that Spartan diplomacy is much more important to their success mm. than, you know, whatever that kind of warrior prowess may have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one might also say, I mean, the more I'm looking into this, the more I think that some of their success in diplomacy is actually because they are such impressive rich people. Mm-hmm. They are really wealthy. I mean, they are just every aristocrat's dream of what a super aristocrat should look like. And, you know, yes, they have the leisured lifestyles that not many people can afford, particularly mm-hmm. in the Peloponnese. Even the rich cattle barons of Acadia, 
probably, you know, don't have quite the lifestyle of a Spartan. I mean, the Spartans, they are not allowed to have whatever gold ornaments and whatever, but it's nevertheless a wealthy man's lifestyle, and it's extremely mm -hmm. so. They've got huge amounts of land. They've got every, loads of people to do their work for them. And basically, their lifestyle is hunting and sport and dining together. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Everyone's dream. And so, <laughs> you know, and that, I think, must have been there before the Persian Wars. Mm -hmm. But Thermopylae absolutely is, is the absolute PR dream for the Spartans. And they're very good at using this. You know, everyone thinks that the Spartans are straightforward and simple and whatever. Absolutely not. They're sophisticated <laughs> in their PR. And Thermopylae absolutely shows that in the aftermath. So, yeah, so they're definitely different. They're definitely impressive. But, yeah, the warrior image is perhaps not the thing. So mm -hmm. I would think it's their extreme wealth. That was one thing that was that was very interesting to me to learn is is from that extreme wealth comes they didn't have jobs. And so even if, like warrior lifestyle wasn't you know the thing in sparta they inherently were going to be better at it because mm. they didn't have to do a job so they could train for longer and they could just mm. up and go like and and all of those things are things i would have never thought about but yeah mm. exactly it, it all links back to that wealth and mm. it just like all works together to make these people that just almost it was just that they had more time it wasn't that they were like said about being the best warriors they were they just had the time to to like be better at it but then like you're saying as well the numbers and everything it's just fascinating the ways that these things kind of worked together um and then the myth making afterwards that the way mm. they then yeah you know put up so many different shrines and whatnot to like really show off and really like amplify what had happened there and, and make it into this whole other thing is, is so interesting but i mean the fascinating thing at the same time is that mm -hmm. While this myth making is going on and clearly is being swallowed pretty mm -hmm. much wholesale by many <laughs> people on the outside, their own myths that they're telling to themselves aren't mm -hmm. necessarily saying, you know, our ancestors at the time of the Trojan War were particularly brilliant warriors. Mm -hmm. I mean, perhaps that's not even easy to do because in the Iliad they don't really turn up as such. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the the most accomplished warriors in the Iliad are Sicilians. Mm. I mean, Achilles' people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Menelaus is a bit of a, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. wet blanket, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. He's just I kind mean, of there. <laughs> and, you know, Agamemnon is throwing his weight around, but he's not, he's often described as, as not a particularly clever commander. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he really riles up his people. And, I mean, the fact that he basically loses... Achilles' goodwill is, I mean, you know, Achilles obviously is overdoing it, but Agamemnon hasn't been playing this well either. So, I mean, you know, these people are not particularly looking like the kind of, you know, ancestors of this, these people of full of warrior prowess. I mean, that's, and perhaps it's very hard to work around this because, I mean, the Iliad is one of those fixed points. Mm -hmm. You can add things, you can add kind of almost fan fiction like stories of what happens between the lines or what happens to people afterwards or before or you know origin stories you can do all of that but i mean that text stands mm -hmm. and so certain characters you are very very difficult to change i think mm -hmm. so so there is only so much you can do and and so in an odd way the the, the warrior propaganda happens elsewhere 
mm-hmm. and the Lycurgus stories obviously being one of them, but the other one is really just um, history making mm-hmm. and the way Spartans set up monuments and the way Persian wars are clearly commemorated and, and thought about. And the same again with the victories of the Peloponnesian War and so on. I mean, so some of this is actually really not communicated through myth, which I find quite interesting because Greeks really do a lot of communicating through myth. And Mm -hmm. for example, the Athenians absolutely, you know, somehow expand their empire into the past. And suddenly they are the ancestors of the Ionians. And there are all sorts of, there's manipulation going on all over the place. and, Mm -hmm. And you'd think that exactly that kind of main quality of the Spartans that everyone knows about gets backdated into mythical times. Mm-hmm. And it's not happening as much as you'd think. Do you think that the the Dioscori could be seen as that example? Because to me, they, they don't feature in much, but then they do become this like big warrior brotherhood or like, you know, warrior twins of Sparta. They seem like they could be like the one place where maybe they are trying to pull that back into the history. Yeah, I mean, they clearly they clearly uh, feature in this. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the main point about them is, the, is also that they are, you know, the perfect young men in some mm-hmm. ways. They go through so many adventures. It's it, Again, it's not the typical warrior kind of thing that, you know, they are good in the battle line. Mm-hmm. They are much more heroic figures than that. And, of course, your average Spartan, even the comedy Spartan in Aristophanes, will always you know it's always by the twin gods and it's clearly what they say mm-hmm. um when um and what no and no one else does i mean that's very spartan they mm-hmm. so they are clearly the perfect young men the kind of perfect men that young spartans are and young aristocrats in other places try to be as well of course but the, that's something every spartan citizen is Mm-hmm. or wants to be, or is forced to be, or however you want to say. So, yeah, I mean, the Dioscuri are clearly important in this. Whether they quite fit the warrior image, I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, the the power myth for the Spartans is actually Heracles and his descendants. And right. we'll have to come back to that, because I think mm-hmm. that's a that's, that's a big chunk of how we have to think about about their way of using myth to project their power. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Dioscuri, uh, what's interesting about them as well is that the story is really adaptable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they can have, I mean, you've got their main story, who their parents are and so on, but then they can have as many adventures as you like, as long as the generation is right, of course, but they're same mm-hmm. generation as Theseus and, you know, and there's a lot going on. So the Dioscuris turn up in all sorts of places and kind of, you know, Gain the Spartans a foothold in in various in various places, of course. Although I always wonder, you know, some you know, the story of Theseus um, abducting Helen. I mean, where does that come from? And presumably, that's an Athenian story trying to get a piece of you know, um, of 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 the Spartan past and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think exactly that the story about that generation of heroes with Helen very important before the Trojan War. And the Dioscuri, and Theseus, and then Heracles getting involved. I mean, all of that, I think, is very much the space where all sorts of power games can be played out over the centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, also, because Heracles is very movable, Theseus is increasingly used to extend Athenian power into the past. 
And so all these interactions, and one shouldn't be too literal about this. I mean, that's also important. Mm -hmm. I think they give a sense of how people felt about some of these relationships. I mean, of course, these myths don't literally reflect a particular battle or a particular event. But I think I think there's a lot going on there. And mm -hmm. particularly, you do have Heracles basically conquering large bits of the Peloponnese in that sort of generation of myth before the Trojan War, mm -hmm. which plays a really important role in, in how Sparta later on thinks of its territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many things are coming out of that that are just so interesting to think about but I, I mean I think about Theseus a lot he's kind of my running joke in the show just because he is so objectively bad in like basically every story and, and yet he is also clearly like you know to put it to simplify it he's a bit of a propaganda piece too right he is used to spread Athenian history like you're saying to bring it into the past to the generation before the Trojan War in a time when Athens like wouldn't have been doing very much um, and so it is so interesting to look at Theseus in that way, but then, you know, and then you kind of have to wonder how the Helen bits, like uh, obviously him, his connection to Helen is a way for, for Athens to make this connection, you know, even further into this epic generation from Homer that they want to really align themselves with. Um, but it is so interesting that in that story of, of him abducting Helen, like, even if you ignore all of the objectively gross things about it, that she's like at the very oldest, she's 12 and like all these other things. But even that without that, like the Dioscori get her back. So Athens loses to Sparta even there. And so that alone, and I, you know, maybe it's just like, well, they couldn't like, they couldn't change the history of Helen being in Sparta. So they had to account for it. But I like it because it's like, even in this attempt to make Theseus to be this really important mythological figure um, that heightens the control of Athens, all these different things, even then, you know, he still loses to the Spartans. And it's, it, yeah, it, it's interesting to think about it that way. On the other hand, I've always wondered, and I don't have an answer to this, mm. what that actually means. I mean, if you think about all of this from the very traditional Greek way of thinking about the woman's value. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'd actually think that after she's been abducted and presumably been raped, Helen isn't is damaged goods from mm -hmm. that, you know, patriarchal uh, way of thinking. And that obviously doesn't come up, which is very interesting. She's still the most desirable woman in Greece mm -hmm. after this. So, you know, that's a you know, I don't know how this fits in and mm -hmm. how people thought about that. But I've I've always wondered, I mean, how, mm. how this is actually read. If we think that, I mean, of course, many of the storytellers would have been women, but the very official, you know, recital of mythical stories and festivals and so on is, is a male thing. And at least partially, these stories fit into male ideas of, what a woman should be and mm -hmm. and helen in a way you know i mean you would think you know everyone's honor is by this point completely damaged and mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to be the case i mean yeah. it might tell you that the story is so late that you know was added at mm -hmm. a point when again the story of helen as the most desirable woman in grace isn't can't be changed mm -hmm. and of course there are late versions of stories I mean, you know, all these horrible um, stories about Penelope 
<laughs> after, you know, I mean, people people do change. Admirable women always get bad gossip attached to them. Mm-hmm. But this seems to be in a different league, actually, mm-hmm. the, the story of, of Theseus, uh, abducting yeah. Helen. No, that's but, a very good point. I, I'm trying to think of where the source, it, it, or which source this is coming from, but in my, you know, just memory hole of mythology, um, my mem- my thinking on it had always been, or or rather what I remember, had always been that like, and again, I think this does exactly reflect what you're saying about it being a myth added on later. But to me, they've always added it on and then added that little like additional bit that's like, so he abducted her, but whether or not, you know, whether or not this was intentional or not, he didn't actually get around to raping her because he then went and helped Pirithus try to abduct Persephone and then he got stuck there. So I I think it's almost like a way to not damage Helen is to say that because he also like, he didn't fight the Dioscori for her. They fought while he was locked away in the underworld for being an absolute dumbass. Um, But you know, like, so it's like he put her into this castle somewhere. Right. And then she ends up getting rescued and he's like not even there for any of it. So I think that is almost like the way of, of clarifying like yeah he abducted her and you know she was an actual child uh but he never even got to that part that was going to come later so she's fine and he's kind of not as horrible and all these different things but it is it, yeah it's interesting to think about it that way too and now i want to go back and figure out where I mean, i've read these things <laughs> and i particularly think i mean i i think a lot of this must have been shaped by various um uh, different versions of attic drama because, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, that, you know, you've got a fairly horrible story and you know how it goes and then you sort of rescue it in all sorts of ways. I mean, and, and generally the way it's it's built and the way it kind of rescues Theseus a bit, but not quite, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, draws all sorts of very interesting moral dilemmas. I mean, I, think, I don't think there's a question that this, I mean, we've, mm-hmm. we've got some of them, but I always think there is so much attic drama we don't have but which mm-hmm. throws a very long shadow over stories. Now, sometimes when people do very detailed research into this, and frankly, attic drama um, fragments is not quite where I'm an expert, <laughs> but, you know, even very local history, I mean, stuff that turns up in Pausanias and you suddenly realize some local town somewhere in the Peloponnese has a local story which has been adapted to something that was made famous by a- Athenian drama. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, they had their own story. Some Athenian writer took it, turned it into a piece of drama, which was quite famous, even if we don't have it. Then everyone in the, certainly in the Roman world, knows the story from that drama. It comes back to that town and they basically adapt their local story to that because mm-hmm. Athenian drama is really shapes things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I guess nowadays the equivalent would be that you've got a local story and the big Hollywood movie is made of it. And then everyone remembers the version of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens quite often with books, for example. Oh, right. Loads oh, yeah. of people <laughs> don't remember the book anymore, but actually, and I think that happens with attic drama as well. So mm-hmm. so I think the power of that uh, shouldn't be underestimated and how that shapes stories and how, you know, and I, I think the way these stories, these adapted stories that get integrated in, into the mythical landscape of the places where the myth is at home originally. I think they don't do that grudgingly. They're mm-hmm. probably, you know, it makes them more famous in a way. And it mm-hmm. brings their story out 
um, I'm sure there were some people grumbling about adaptation and how, you know, attic <laughs> drama changes all our stories and this is all wrong. <laughs> the, kind, the kind of discussion you have between purists and people who like adaptations about any kind of movie that a, where the book already has fans, you know? I mean, that must have happened in yeah. antiquity as well. You know, that Euripides, I mean, he really mangled <laughs> our story of, you know, <laughs> of Helen. How dare he? You know? It must happen. I mean, no question about this. Yeah. this. And I think this interaction, this constant interaction with myth and literally treat, the literary treatment of it and mm. retelling of it and so on in different places and different contexts is something that's... I find it really fascinating, and of course, it's very visible in Pausanias. Once you mm. dig into the kind of stories he's telling, you can actually see that this has happened. And of course, that's very late, but it must have happened all the time. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are some local stories that interact with the Iliad and get shaped by it and have to adapt around it and so on. And in Sparta, that's probably particularly strong. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one issue, for example, is that Helen clearly is a local goddess possibly mm -hmm. i mean she clearly i mean that's one theory at least that helen was actually a local divinity but she clearly at least had the status of a heroine and and that's still the case and at the same time there is the story that turns up in the iliad which probably doesn't quite fit the character that she was locally mm -hmm. and who knows how that character got into into the Homeric epics. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, those processes are really hard to, to tell. We don't even know how far back that may have happened. I mean, you know, Helen may have been an entity back in the Bronze Age. And who knows? I mean, but in, in any case, there, there's clearly, even at that stage, and this is much, much, much earlier, you've got different versions of these stories that are all reflected in the landscape in slightly different ways. So, so the sanctuary of Helen um, clearly... I mean, in the stories that we've got anyway, uh, divinity or heroine who's helping women with marriage. There's one story of uh, of the wife of a Spartan king who was the ugliest in Sparta and became very beautiful after praying and so on. I mean, you, you get all these kind of things as well. So so Sparta, like any, any other cities, myths, it interacts with the wider, big stream of Greek tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Helen is, because she's so famous and because she's such a complex character in the Iliad, and then you get the Odyssey, where even within, the, exactly. <laughs> even within the epics, she's yeah. really contradictory. Yeah. And so everyone is sort of working away at this character. And you, I mean, and this is where Attic drama is beautiful because it shows us just how much people are thinking about this and it gets mm -hmm. adapted and thought about and um, whatever, Euripides, Trojan women, which is clearly trying to make that step. You know, mm -hmm. there is Helen who is responsible for all of this, but we see Menelaus being sort of seduced by her all over again. Mm -hmm. And so that's the fan fiction-y middle bit that tells you how you get from the uh, Helen in the Iliad to the Helen in the Odyssey. And, you know, there's a lot of that must have been going on. And clearly, yeah. not just, I mean, in Athens, we've got some of it in writing, but yeah. must have been all over the place, everywhere. I mean, the Spartans themselves constantly must have told stories about how this works or how their own, you know, local heroine turns into this. And of course, you've got these versions where Helen never gets to Troy, and it's yeah. actually kind of just an image of her. 
-hmm. Where does that come from? Mm -hmm. I mean, is that one of the ways out to say our respectable character, our goddess or heroine, isn't actually this person, you know, the, um, who causes a war and who mm -hmm. is basically a traitor to Sparta? I mean, how did the Spartans cope with with the Helen and the Iliad? We don't mm -hmm. know, of course. I mean, this is really something where we have no idea. We just know there is a different version of Helen back home in Sparta mm -hmm. who looks after Spartans and particularly Spartan women, it seems, and, you know, who is hard to imagine as, as that kind of traitor um, mm -hmm. character. So so somehow we've lost that those stories that fill the gap, but of course they are there. They, mm -hmm. they must be. Mm-hmm. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. 
Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. How did they, just made me think of this, um, how did they see Clytemnestra? I don't actually know. I mean, Ketamnestra oh. doesn't really turn up very much. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because it's always forgotten that he's a Spartan woman. Yeah. But I can't really think, I don't think I'm overlooking anything obvious, but I can't mm-hmm. really think of any of any place where she turns up in relationship mm-hmm. to Sparta. Perhaps it was enough for them to own Helen, uh, mm-hmm. so that you know owning Clytemnestra as well would have, um, would have been a bit too much. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I also can't really. He must turn up in drama somewhere, but I can't really think of an explicit place where someone says there is this evil woman, and of course she's evil because she's Spartan or something like that. You'd expect the Athenians to say something like that, mm-hmm. perhaps. But it's yeah, not. I don't think- I don't think, I don't think that tragedy. turns up anywhere. So now Clytemnestra yeah. mm-hmm. isn't really seen as very Spartan. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, is interesting. Yeah, yeah she you been get demonized. modern fiction where you've got her as girl in Sparta and you get mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. people are imagining it. And we have, I don't think we have a trace of the Greeks imagining that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a fascinating one. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know about it, but I, I don't. I'm sure someone will get back to you. I mean, if you leave that in the podcast, someone will get back to you and say, haven't you thought of this bit? Um, I mean, and that's I great. And then I'll cover it. <laughs> I, you know, there isn't anything big and obvious that I'm, I mm-hmm. can think of at this point. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, it certainly kind of tracks to me, like if they, because the, the Iliad was this sort of separate thing that kind of came, you know, who, whoever knows the timing or whatever, but but the idea being that like they had already kind of had Helen and and then Clytemnestra is is I don't know she's not referenced much in the Iliad I guess even but but the ideas around her come from that and and so it you know and and she's not exactly seen as a particularly good woman so it does not mm. it's not surprising that mm. that Sparta wouldn't wouldn't kind of base that much around her um, but it is interesting especially if Orestes played a role then it's like hey you know his mom was Spartan like I know because it, it I was wondering when you mentioned him earlier, is the, is the connection made with the versions where he ends up with Hermione or, or separate from that? No, it's separate from that. Interesting. Um, okay. So the idea is basically, and I think this is why Orestes becomes so important. Mm. The idea is that he um, became the king of the whole Peloponnese mm. after the Trojan War. So he comes back, he leaves behind his madness and in the end he becomes king and of course there is no heir to the Spartan throne I mean or rather mm-hmm. he he marries Hermione and so mm-hmm. he he's the the king of Argos uh, or Mycenae and Sparta but yeah I mean the, the notion was always that he was ruling the whole Peloponnese and mm-hmm. in a way that's the last time in myth that that's that this happens. Mm-hmm. So I think the Spartan focus on Orestes must come from a period when they first thought of claiming the whole Peloponnese in some ways. Not necessarily mm-hmm. by conquest, but by dominance through alliance. Mm-hmm. And this comes earlier than one thinks. Hmm. Because, I mean, at least if, if Herodotus is right, 
there's quite a bit of Peloponnesian rhetoric that's certainly around in connection with with the Persian Wars. Now, some of it might be Herodotus, in which case we get back to the second half of the 5th century when the Spartans definitely want to dominate the Peloponnese. But if he is right when he quotes the famous inscriptions at Thermopylae, mm. there is one, I mean, there's a really famous one, go tell the Spartans, that one. But there is another one that celebrates the Peloponnesians, the men from the Peloponnese who, who fought in the battle. And it actually name-checks the Peloponnese as a whole thing. And that's mm -hmm. the first time this happens. I mean, for me, mm -hmm. that's a big turning point. Because if that inscription was real, and I'm assuming it was because Herodotus quoting it, loads of people must have known it. Thermopylae was a famous place. The inscriptions presumably were known. They're quite mm -hmm. short. Everyone could probably quote them. Mm -hmm. So if that's right, if they were celebrating uh, the Peloponnesians who fought at Thermopylae, and there weren't that many of them, Mm -hmm. And they were certainly not all of them. Then that claim goes back at least to the to the Persian Wars and a bit earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, so hard to tell. But at some point, the Spartans think that the Peloponnese is kind of their turf. Mm -hmm. They're probably not the first people to do so because there are lots of Peloponnesian claims in connection with Pelops right. in Elis much earlier. So the sanctuary at Olympia is celebrating Pelops and all sorts of connections across the peninsula, but at some point the Spartans are the people who kind of make that claim. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not about conquest. I don't think mm -hmm. there's any sign that at any point they wanted to conquer it all. But, mm -hmm. you know, being able to call up men from most of it is is where they, they go. Mm -hmm. And then Orestes becomes important. If you want to make a claim, because, I mean, on what basis can you say that you might have a right to that or how mm -hmm. do you project that power back into the past then Orestes is pretty much your candidate um, mm. because this is all before the Dorians arrive and now this will become important in a moment but but essentially the problem is the Peloponnese, the Peloponnese is in terms of these ethnic groups very mixed mm -hmm. and Orestes is so early that he could kind of be claimed to predate all of that. Now, the Arcadians are so old that they claim to be older than the moon. And <laughs> they claim Great. to be not involved in any of this. But even they were followers of Agamemnon. So you could mm -hmm. claim, okay, fine, you are, you're not related to anyone. You are even older than the Greeks. You are older than anything. You've always been there, sprung from the soil. But nevertheless, you followed Agamemnon. So you were clearly also part of the... Kingdom of Orestes. So that's the mm -hmm. only point. If you want everyone in there, then Orestes is your man. And it's quite clear mm -hmm. that at some point the Spartans became quite keen on this. Because there is the story that they actually took his bones. And mm. the story in Herodotus is that they took his bones from Tegea. So that's the northern neighbor, an Akkadian city. And that that was kind of the magical way of overcoming the resistance of that one city. And after that, all the other Akkadians, certainly, so all the central Peloponnese, came in and became allies as well. And that mm -hmm. kind of crux the problem. I mean, once they've got the Akkadians are meant to be very good warriors and, you know, they live in their little mountain valleys and they're hard to overcome. But taking the bones of Orestes does the trick. So Herodotus tells us. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I think that story, I mean, there are all sorts of dodgy details in that story of Herodotus. It can't be quite as it is. I also think that bone stealing is much more a 5th century thing than earlier. Hmm. So it, it may well have happened after the Persian Wars when the Spartans became much more concerned with all of this. But, I mean, you can only guess. Mm-hmm. What seems to be absolutely true is that the Spartans had a tomb of Orestes and it was clear that the bones had been brought from somewhere else at a point when the Spartans basically said, look, um, he's our ancestor and in, in a way he seals their their rights of, dom- of dominance in the Peloponnese. So that clearly happens at some point. By the time Herodotus gets around to it, whenever, mid-5th mm-hmm. century, late-5th century, it has happened, and there are stories mm-hmm. about it. Um, and so Orestes is important. Also interesting, um, the one of the main sanctuaries of the Spartans is the sanctuary of Artemis of Thea. Mm. And the story, certainly by the time Pausanias comes around, goes that that ancient image of Artemis, which must have been a wooden statue, really, really ancient, mm. uh, perhaps 7th century, perhaps older, but you know the kind of statue that looks more like a carved tree trunk than a Greek statue. Mm. Um, and they said that that was the image of Artemis that Iphigenia had brought from Tauris. Oh, wow. And there is another city that claims that, and that's the Athenians, who <laughs> said their Artemis of Brauron was that Artemis. statue. Yeah. But Pausanias thinks that's not it. Um, ah. And he actually has a bit of an argument about it. And of course, <laughs> if you think about the story, I mean, if Orestes brings it home, and that's what Pausanias says, well, uh-huh. he might have stopped by in Attica, but why on earth would he left it there? Yeah. You know, why wouldn't he bring yeah. it back to the Peloponnese where he's himself at home? And so, yeah, so Pausanias thinks the Spartan claim is better. But so Iphigenia comes in into the story as well, actually. And so Orestes plays plays an important role for the Spartans. But yeah, it's it's mostly, I think, this, this claim to power right. that, that goes before the upheavals after the, the Trojan War. That, that are yeah. that really make this important huh oh that's so interesting now i want to make sure we get to it because this has been so incredible and already an hour my gosh um but so uh, heracles and the dorians and all of that like yeah wh- where and how does that come in oh that's yeah i mean this is of course the most important bit of the jigsaw mm-hmm. but it's perhaps good to have the other stuff out of the way so Heracles, he is not actually very well connected with Sparta. Mm-hmm. I mean, his family comes from Tiryns in the Argulate. And of course, he was born in Thebes. That's where he is at home. So what on earth is he doing in Sparta? And in many ways, of that's connected with his descendants. But it starts with um, a campaign of Heracles into mm-hmm. various parts of the Peloponnese. And so, uh, and of course, that's all before the Trojan War and before Orestes. And the idea is really that he goes around the Peloponnese and campaigns in all sorts of places and really changes all sorts of um, really royal houses, really. There's a huge clean out of old kings and coming in of new families. Now, the interesting thing is, in a way, is that Heracles goes around and produces the situation, political situations we see in the Trojan War. So he brings hmm. in mm-hmm. all the fathers of the Trojan War heroes into 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 their their respective positions of power, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I think 
I mean, I've got a fiendishly complicated theory about this, which <laughs> always completely stumps my students. So please cut it out if it gets too complicated. Oh, I'm, but, I'm excited. <laughs> but I think what happens is the Iliad is really ancient, right? Really, mm. really, really ancient. But at the same time, as these communities develop, they all put down roots in myth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where do we come from? Why are we here? Who are our ancestors? So you get these stories and they go backwards from each place. But at the same time, there is this sort of panhellenic story of the Iliad, which in many ways doesn't fit the mm-hmm. stories that people tell about themselves because it's kind of a kind of outside narrative that comes mm-hmm. from somewhere else and has been composed from very many traditions. So as cities are sort of telling stories about their founder heroes, a really long, you know, many generations before the Trojan War, that fits their own image whenever, in the 7th century, in the 6th century, who knows when, but after the Iliad. Mm -hmm. So the problem is the Iliad doesn't fit in. There's a break. And so Heracles conveniently is the person who carries out this break. So the Spartans have their ancestors going back to the Lelegas, one of these sort of pre-Greek people and Mm -hmm. so on. But, you know, someone has to get rid of that family of kings. So, yeah, I mean, Heracles comes in and basically deals with it. Um, There's also a conflict with someone called Hippocon. And I'm I'm sure you're going to tell this story. But, you know, in any case, Heracles, you know, he gets rid of Augeas in Elis and puts in different people. And there are all sorts of places. So he causes a lot of upheaval. Mm-hmm. Then you get all the people. So he puts Tindareos into Sparta, who's been thrown out by someone else, um, and so on. Um, and then you've got the landscape of Gilead, so the fathers of all the people who went to the Trojan War. Then you've got the Trojan War. You get the sons of these people, like Orestes, perhaps another generation, and then the descendants of Heracles come in and mess everything up again. And you go back to the myths that actually go with every place. That's later than the Iliad. So in a way, Heracles and his descendants open up this window where the Iliad fits, although it doesn't fit at all because it's basically older than all the other traditions. Yeah. And then, you know, so Heracles, mess, 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 mess. Um, All the kings of the the Iliad, all those royal families, Heracles' descendants come back, more mess, and we are back to where we need to be to fit whatever, the picture of 6th or 5th century Greece. And and so this is really, it's really fascinating because I think, of course, there must have been stories of Heracles going around making war in all sorts of places a long mm-hmm. time. But he's a brilliant instrument. If you need a story for, you know, why don't we have three generations before the Trojan War, we have these kings. And a generation before the Trojan War, we have those kings. What happens? Well, what happens? Guess. And so there must have been a lot of that. And, and I don't mean that cynically. People ask mm-hmm. these questions. Why is this? And then, well... What would have happened two generations before the Trojan War? Who was going around the Peloponnese making trouble? Well, guess. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's how these stories grew and sort of, I mean, because Greek mythology makes sense, but it makes sense because someone made it make sense. <laughs> and of course, each each local tradition has its own trajectory. And at some point, perhaps even in the Hellenistic period, people made it make sense across the board. And there's mm-hmm. a lot you can see. There are lots of contradictions to get leveled out and so on. So some of it mm-hmm. is completely artificially done by scholars. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. Heracles is a brilliant catalyst for all of this. Mm-hmm. And his descendants are too. 
So he messes up the Peloponnese big time, but he brings in, he helps to bring in Tyndareus, and so, you know, that's an important role for the Spartans. Mm-hmm. But of course, the crucial thing of Heracles is actually what his descendants were doing. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Heracles himself wasn't even Dorian. But he is, of course, he gets thrown out of the Pel- exiles from the Peloponnese, and then he settles down, and his descendants settle down in Doris, that very little area with three or four little towns uh, not far from Delphi, and they become Dorians. Hmm. And then they, when they come back into the Peloponnese, and that happens two generations after the Totan War, they come in and they plant the Dorians in, mm-hmm. and and so, and and of course that becomes important because that's about well, three and a half bits of the Peloponnese. Um, so you've got Corinth and Argos, Dorians. Then there are the Spartans themselves, the Messenians. And Elis, well, um, they are, their ancestors, they say they're actually Aetolians, but they came with the Dorians, and the guy who helped the Dorians to come in basically got that bit. But again, the, the so-called Dorian migration shapes those areas. So if you think mm-hmm. of a map of the Peloponnese, that's basically pretty much all around the coast. Mm-hmm. So the middle bit, Acadia, is missing, and then the top bit, which is Achaea. Mm-hmm. And at the story, the Achaeans... They were, those are, of course, the people who sort of stand in for the Greeks in the Iliad. Mm-hmm. Oh, and of course. Yeah. The original, so you've got the Arcadians originally, but most inhabitants of the Peloponnese early on are Achaeans, because mm-hmm. that's what the Iliad says. So they go to the northern Peloponnese and settle there, and some of them go over to and become the Ionians. Mm-hmm. And that all happens. These So this whole upheaval with, with the with the Heraclidae coming into the Peloponnese, completely changes its landscape, except the Acadians in the middle, who say, well, we have nothing to do with this. We've always yeah. been here. You are newcomers. Now, you also have to see, I mean, the Acadian story probably goes back a long time. Yeah. But at the same time, the assumption has to be that the more the Acadians were threatened by their neighbors, who were thinking of themselves as Dorian, the more they, this story becomes valuable, where they mm-hmm. say, well, we've always been here. We are autochthonous. We are older than the moon. We are the proper Peloponnesians. You're newcomers. You're just Dorians mm-hmm. from up north. I mean, you know. And so so that kind of... And uh, that shapes a lot of the relationships in the Peloponnese later on. Now, of mm-hmm. course, those relationships also shape the myths. But nevertheless, I mean, that's... And this is one of the reasons why the Spartans can never come up with a story that works for all the Peloponnesians. Right. There is no, we are all Dorians. I mean, Orestes is kind of at a push, is the best they can get to. But that's yeah. a long time off, and actually they're Dorians. So, so this is an issue. And I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why the Peloponnesian League doesn't have a foundation myth, a p- proper one. Mm-hmm. Because you couldn't come up with one, because the Acadians would always say, "Well, that's not us." Mm-hmm. And the more hostile they got to the Spartans, the more that was a problem. I mean, they weren't go- ever going to be Dorians. You yeah. could you couldn't invent, you know, whatever. Uh, Arcas actually married some sort of Dorian ancestor, and that's why you are actually a bit Dorian after all. It just doesn't. It just doesn't work. I mean, yeah. their identity is really strongly old, non-newcomer. And all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And this is, of course, I mean, that shapes politics in the Peloponnese in a way. And it, it shapes the idea that they're Peloponnesians. It's, it took me a long while to realize that this is actually quite weird, that they're called after a geographical entity and not mm-hmm. after, you know, there's Pelops, yes, but, you know, they're not named after an ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And they never claim to be an ethnic group. That's mm-hmm. not, the Peloponnesians are not an ethnic group. They're a bunch of people who work together if they need to. Mm-hmm. And he can't ever get any further because the myths do not allow it. It's so sometimes, sometimes these things, these identities are so strong, you can't come up with a myth that brings them all together. I mean, Orestes was a shot; they had a shot at it, but that wasn't enough. Quite clear, clearly, yeah. the Athenians were not convinced by this. Quite obviously, I so, mean, not when you're older than the moon. You can't. Yeah, be exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the Athenians are very special. I mean, yeah. um and you know they work with the spartans most times not always but yeah it remains actually quite a sort of yeah it's a political relationship not one that's rooted in an identity that you can create Mm -hmm. and there are plenty of examples where we have different people with different ethnic identities working together and slowly creating a common ethnic identity Mm -hmm. or cities that weren't originally part of of an ethnic group being moved into it and you know you come up with a new mythical story about oh yes by the way there was our eponymous hero had another son and here is that bit i mean that (laughs) happens quite a lot and and it works and it helps people to come together and to feel they have something in common but the peloponnese as a whole you can't do that with Mm -hmm. because these these stories about the dorian migration and 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 the the conquests that they carried out, I mean, that's quite strong. I mean, that defines those Dorian places. And, of course, it goes so far for the Spartans that, of course, their royal houses are directly descended from these people. Mm. Um, so you really have um, the story of Aristodemus, who was, mm-hmm. well probably never actually made it into the Peloponnese, but his twin sons do. Mm. And although they are enemies, it's quite funny. I mean, we've got another set of founding twins who are real enemies. Mm. (laughs) I wonder where Rome got it. Hmm. Yeah, it's (laughs) interesting. Um, But in any case, yeah, I mean, and they're... Their son, so they couldn't they couldn't come up with just one king. And again, this is this is one of those why questions, right? Why do the Spartans have two royal houses? That's weird. Mm-hmm. Why are you so weird, Spartans? Well, here's our stories. There were twins. They didn't get on, so both their descendants became um, the ancestors of our kings. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's brilliant is, I mean, I really loved that bit early in Pausanias Book Three, where he goes down. The whole genealogy. I mean, genial. Most mm. people find genealogies boring, but these ones are amazing because they go all the way from well, the people who came in two generations after the Trojan War to the Hellenistic period, and it goes from one king to the next. And you go, you know, you've got uh, Agis, the son of Eurystheus. Um, and the son of Aristodemus, you know, I mean, sort of, you know, two generations after the Trojan War, you go down to uh, Leonidas and finally to Cleomenes III, who mm-hmm. died in 222 BC, right in the Hellenistic period. And it goes through. 
And of course, wow. this is one of the, there are a few other technologies like this, but the Spartan ones are really remarkable because we don't know. And absolutely people have tried to figure it out. And I mean, uh, Paul Cartridge, for example, has an, has an opinion of where the first historian, historical king is in that line. Mm. But it really fades from myth, obviously myth, yeah. into history. And the final bit is absolutely history. I mean, yeah. you know, we've got inscriptions with those names on and whatever. Um, and so that's really fascinating. But clearly that's how Spartan history goes. And, and those royal houses really link them with, with that past. And also, of course, are part of the specific weirdness of the Spartans that, you know, makes them yeah. so Spartan. They've got kings. I mean, that alone is very, you know, under any other circumstance would would be considered horribly un-Greek. And mm -hmm. then they even have two sets of kings. Two like, of what's them. that yeah. all about? But yeah, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, so, and again, I mean, that particular Spartan weirdness, for example, goes back a very long way. I don't think there's a question about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, here is a bit where, I mean, I agree with this stuff that the Persian Wars make a huge difference, but yeah, yeah. there's certain aspects of Spartan uniqueness that go back. And and they see it as that. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. reason why, um, you know, these these genealogies somehow define the Spartans going mm -hmm. back the way. And so it's not Heracles himself, but it's his descendants mm -hmm. that make, mm -hmm. that really define them. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Heracles, you know, one could argue he's a very Spartan sort of guy. Um, (laughs) And I have no idea what the Thebans thought about this. Because, I mean, there's no question that the Spartans were in some ways associated with Heracles. Yeah. And the Thebans were too. Yeah. But in a way, the Spartans get a lot of the attention. Yeah. And, I mean, it's hard to tell, but I think even when the Athenians built their treasury in in Delphi and mm-hmm. put on it um, a mix between stories of Theseus and, and stories of Heracles and they mm-hmm. parallel them. Look, our Theseus is as good as Heracles. <laughs> now, are they talking to Sparta or are they talking to mm-hmm. Thebes? I mean, mm-hmm. mostly people think they're already talking to Sparta. And again, the date of that is a bit tricky. How far back does it go? How far is it linked to the Persian Wars? But in, mm-hmm. in any case, you know, um, I mean, probably it is a sort of us and, and Sparta thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Heracles becomes Spartan, although really he won companion to Sparta at some point, and that's, that's pretty much what it is. But yeah. it's this, the way his descendants define how the Peloponnese works and what Dorian means. And, I mean, I'm very much with Jonathan Hall, who actually thinks that, you know, there is no such thing as the so-called Dorian migration. I mean, for a long time, people obviously thought at the end of the Bronze Age, the new people coming in, and that's a Dorian migration. Mm-hmm. And archaeologically speaking, there is absolutely no evidence for this, mm-hmm. not whatsoever. So, no, probably not. And I think mm-hmm. Jonathan Hall's sort of narrative of, you know, the traces of how these stories develop, how different certain areas sort of consolidate also note similarities in their culture and so on. I mean, there are clearly diff- cultural differences, dialectal differences. I mean, the Akkadians speak a dialect that is actually more old-fashioned than the Dorians in their neighborhood. Mm. That's absolutely right, and so on. But, yeah. And, of course, the Spartans shared certain festivals and so on. I mean, the Kanea festival, for example, which is so important that they don't go to war, even if it's very, very urgent and so on. Mm-hmm. Because all the other Dorians share that as well. Mm. And the Spartans might come out of a lot of this. Um, of course, when it's not just a Peloponnesian thing, they've got relationships to places like Thera, which they say, I mean, according to their stories, they found it. And of course, really? they, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a big foundation story. I mean, this goes back 
again in the Pausanias version there's a Herodotus version of it as well and I'm not <laughs> sure how he dates it in sort of myth dates yeah but the Pausanias version puts it very early sort of that goes with the earliest sort of kings of Sparta yeah. Um, and there's a man called Theras, and he goes off and, and founds the so-called colony, colony in Thera. Um, By Thera, you mean like Santorini Thera? Yeah, exactly. Okay, wow, yeah. Just making sure I was not missing yeah. another one, because I'm like, that's so unbelievable. Wow. No, that's your story. And the, yeah. big, the big implication of this it actually comes in Herodotus. You can check out his foundation story of the city of Cyrene. Mm. Because that again starts with the Spartan story of no, I'm just thinking he date does date it differently because mm. in his case it's a kind of internal conflict of Spartans in relationship with the Messenian Wars. But in any case, they mm. they found they found the colony in Thera, and Thera then found Cyrene, mm. and Cyrene clearly is quite keen on having that Spartan connection as well as the Theran mm. connection. And so, so that's remembered. But of course, there's also um, Tarentum in southern mm-hmm. Italy. Um, and then there are Dorian places overseas that aren't Spartan colonies. But, you know, the connections can be used. So Syracuse, for example, via its friends in Corinth, but they invite the Spartans in to help them against the Athenians. And, and there are relations there. There are links to places like Rhodes. And mm. also the southwest corner of Asia Minor, places like Halicarnassus and so on, are mm. officially thought of as Dorian, which is a bit weird because, I mean, Herodotus mm. comes from a place that's officially Dorian, but of course writes in Ionian. And <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's some really interesting things going on. But, but you know, I mean, these the, the, the Dorian, there are loads of Dorian places which are overseas. And, yeah, Sparta does sometimes use those connections and very important it's you know putative homeland Doris the original homeland of the Dorians um, whenever Sparta wanted to assert control in Delphi then that was a very good reason to go the the original mm-hmm. Dorians feel threatened or need to be helped or whatever it is and the Spartans go off and you know meddle in central Greece yeah. and that happens more than once um, so, so these relationships are, and again, I mean, I don't want to sound this more cynical than it, than it was, I think. I mean, of course, you can use this kind of stuff in political discourse, but mm-hmm. I think they probably you took this quite seriously. So it's not mm-hmm. just superficially, let's think of uh, a lie that people will believe. Um, I always warn people of being too cynical about this, because sometimes yeah. we see this and people say, oh, this is propaganda, but I think mythical connections go deeper than that mm-hmm. now they don't force you to do anything you don't always have to you know uh support all the dorians against everyone who's not dorian if it's you too you can do other things but there are times when this is important and it becomes salient and then this is a valuable connection that's there mm-hmm. and and that's taken seriously by everyone i mean i mm-hmm. think so these myths are really powerful and and it's not just something you pay lip service to, I think, even in the sort of thick of politics. It's still something that probably resonated quite emotionally with people. And I mm-hmm. think that's important to think that it's so hard for us, for us to kind of recreate that, I think. What that mm-hmm. would have felt like. I mean, what, what does that, that, that sort of an, ancestral connection 
going back to Heracles and beyond. I mean, you know, what does that feel like? And I mean feelings, because that's, I think, what it is. You can mm. rationally say, here's the family tree, here's the list, whatever, and they could do that. But I think it's more than that. It's more than just say, okay, let's take out the book and see where the connections are in the family tree. But actually, no, these are Dorians. These are our relations. I think I think that probably had some kind of emotional heft as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that basically all of these origin myths and, and lots of the other myths more broadly too would have would have sort of brought that out in people because it really is all about like understanding the world around you and how you got to where you are and how your ancestors got to where you are and what they experienced along the way. Like one thing I try to remind my listeners as much as possible is to just sort of try to step outside your modern understanding of the world when you are recognizing this and and trying to figure out like what they meant with all these myths. Because more often than not, I'll get questions from people saying like, oh, you know, like, can you talk more about this character or that story? Or, you know, why does this version say this thing and, and this other version says something completely different? And and the answer is always just like, you know, like, well, for the for the variations, it's just a matter of it, it. There was they weren't trying to make sure that everything fit every little detail. Like they weren't, you know, working off of, of our understanding of narrative structure you know that we, the way we think of it now they were just understanding things and, and writing about the world around them but then on top of you know the, the question of these characters like you know when people want more on certain characters or certain stories I just you know it's like they only wrote down, wrote down I mean let alone what we have from what they wrote down but like the the reason they were writing these things wasn't to tell the stories it was usually like they were recording something that had been told already by however many people for however long. And it's like, even if it made its way to us now, we don't, you know, they did, they weren't recording things in the same way we think of it. And basically nothing, you know, is the way we think of it now. And you have to just remind yourself that all the time in order to understand these things. But I, I can't believe how much of this that I didn't know when it comes to the Peloponnese. I'm thrilled with this whole conversation. It's, fascinating and i'm so excited to then get to re- retell these li- li- these myths to my listeners i mean i'm i'm really happy this is this is helpful but yeah i mean i really like your your notion of this that i mean of course there were people who sat down and tried to systematize it mm-hmm. and see it in pseudo apollodorus and so i was gonna say yeah <laughs> the scholars the scholars in in alexandria who wanted to do exactly that you know mm-hmm. and it's quite clear that the generations often didn't square up. Heracles would have met people that don't fit the chronology. And in the end, everything was made to fit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I mean, this is something I always tell my students. If everything seems to fit in Pausanias, it's because there are centuries of, you know, scholars behind him who've made it all fit. And then, of course, the well-educated people back in those little towns they make their own stories fit the big framework because they read, mm-hmm. they read things like Apollodorus, I mean, the original or Apollodorus that we don't have or whatever, mm-hmm. Callimachus. And, you know, I mean, all these kind of things, they, they read that and they fit their stories in because any educated visitor who comes, and Pausanias does that, he comes to visit and says, wait a moment, your myth doesn't fit, that's a generation too late or whatever. Mm. And so, you know, centuries of that, educated people try to do this. But at the same time, the storytelling flourishes on and he doesn't care about it. I mean, I always think, and again, of course, we can't recreate it. But part of the storytelling is quite obviously 
you know, little kids asking, why are yeah. we celebrating this festival? Why is the statue here? What does that temple mean? Or what stories are pe people telling about this tree where we put little ribbons on, on, you know, every second day of the month or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> and there's a lot of female storytelling. Mm. I mean, one also wonders about the, all the enslaved people. How, mm -hmm. you know, how do they story, their stories interact with what's going on? Some of them would have been from other Greek places. A lot of the mixing of stories and interacting of stories presumably comes from people who've been displaced. Mm -hmm. Very often involuntarily. If you think how many enslaved people would have brought up kids and, you know, brought them mm -hmm. to bed and told them stories. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that going on. Um, how many non-Greek stories get mixed into all of this in that way? Mm -hmm. And of course, we have nothing of it. And then exactly what you say, the questions that your listeners ask about, what do we know about this kind of character? Tell us more. I mean, it is exactly the the thing that drives fan fiction. Yeah. And I always <laughs> think fan fiction is a brilliant way of thinking about how myths grow. Mm -hmm. And also about what the Athenian tragedians do and so on you yeah, know just gonna say that exactly yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. Basically... tragedy is fan fiction in the yeah, best absolutely way. it is i mean some of it yeah. is iliad fan fiction totally <laughs> yeah. but there's all sorts of things going on and and also you can draw the same character and make them do different things there isn't canon now we think mm -hmm. now it's canon because mm -hmm. he's wrote it but no euripides came mm -hmm. around along and wrote a play about the same person and the same person does something very different yeah. um it's a bit like you know, Marvel or DC comics where the same character can do very different things or, you know, can be a different person and, you know, whatever. Um, so in a way, all this, this is in literature, but particularly, I think, in storytelling. You can imagine those kids saying, so what happened to Helen after the Trojan War? You know, and then, oh, there's this bit in the Odyssey, but let's think about what happened in between. And someone is a good storyteller and off you go. Mm -hmm. and, and it must have happened every evening of the year in every city you know that you know and at festivals local poets turn this so all the time this material is being retold and read and changed and people are excited about and and sometimes this sort of fan fiction bit would have really annoyed people i guess <laughs> yeah. that story about heracles that we heard at the last festival by this crazy poet we don't like and you know obviously it never gets retold and it, you know, so, so yeah. that, and I think it's really important to imagine this, although we don't have it, mm -hmm. but we have to imagine it because I think then it's much easier to get a sense of what this bulk of stuff is. Yeah. And I think one, it also allows us to be a little bit more irreverent with it. So mm -hmm. in some ways, I think recognizing the deep importance of it, that, you know, they emotionally feel this stuff, but at the same time, Nothing is that serious. Yeah. I mean, you can go off and write, I mean, the telegony, right? Oh, mean, don't even get me started on the telegony. <laughs> I mean, that is the worst piece of fan fiction of all of antiquity, right? Are we agreed yes. on this one? <laughs> I, it's just like, I, come on! <laughs> no, I, I've made it like my... I've, I will never tell that story on the podcast. And now it's like almost a running joke in my own brain of like, my listeners will never hear it. And I stand by that because I, I refuse to believe it's real. 
this is just, but this is exactly the kind of thing, a completely insane piece of fan fiction you come across, you know, some crazy shipping story or whatever. You come yeah. across on the internet and you say, okay, I'm going to ignore this. This is madness. I have not seen this. I will not acknowledge it exists. Yeah. <laughs> this is all the wrong things with those characters. Yeah, you know, I think the Telegram is a beautiful proof that all everything, you know, absolutely everything people could do with these characters, and even things that you didn't couldn't believe someone could do with them. But you know, we've got a thousand years, and God knows how many people <laughs> all retelling these stories and trying to fill the gaps and making fun of it, and well, coming up with some perverted ideas and you know, <laughs> some of them quite misogynistic to be honest and you know mm. but i'm sure there were women who told you know came up with very dreamy versions of some of the heroes <laughs> and amazing versions of the women and you know all of that and sometimes we get glimpses of it and some of it is yeah complete nonsense thank you <laughs> but you know and i think i think once i've started thinking about it like that it's sort of i found it easier to cope with and mm -hmm. i think reading Prusanias, you really need to because it's such a bulk mm -hmm. <laughs> um and contradictory and he's clearly so laid back about it i mean he points out <laughs> oh yeah that's contradictory and that's at some point he says well if if i could basically if i had to tell all the stories of where Zeus was born i think when it comes to mountain number four where Zeus <laughs> was also born then, you know, I would never end. I mean, it's almost like, you know, a penny for each time I get to a mountain where Zeus was born, I'd be rich. <laughs> I mean, he almost says it like that. Yeah. And, you know, he's quite laid back about it. I mean, he points it out because he wants to show off how educated he is. But, yeah, that's what myths are like. And, yeah, getting that relaxed about it. I mean, you clearly, have, you know, completely cracked this one. <laughs> I always find it quite quite hard to pass this on to students i mean it's always great yeah. fun i mean we spend a lot of time sort of mulling this over and yeah there's a lot of talk about fun fun fan fiction and we and i i think they were slightly surprised that someone like me has <laughs> but but yeah all that kind of stuff because actually the internet gives us probably a better handle on this than people have had for a very long time yeah. Because that is a storytelling space. I mean, some of it quite nasty, but it is a storytelling space and a free fall and, and so on. And you can mm -hmm. see what, human, what stories humans want to tell. And they're clearly yeah. trends. I mean, some people go and, you know, write the telecony. But <laughs> you know, clearly, for example, if you've got a beloved story, every character has to have a relationship with every other character. Mm -hmm. However unlikely in some story at some point. I mean, you know, that just... <laughs> Heracles in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that has to happen. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Actually, Heracles goes absolutely everywhere. Everywhere. And attacks pretty much anyone going. Yeah. <laughs> there one story where he like is with 50 women to account for all these different children that he had. He's like, yeah, 50 women in one night or something. Like, oh, okay, sure. Let's let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And again, I mean, obviously, you know, those are. You also also think that those are male wish fulfillment dreams, presumably. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. True, but but you know, nevertheless, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know how how many characters can have? I mean, and then you know how many relationships? You know, Achilles ends up having in some completely impossible ways. I mean, clearly people just couldn't bear the idea that he just basically dies and doesn't yeah. really have all that much well, legitimate sex anyway, on the way. Yeah. 
and, and you know all that kind of stuff i mean it's 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 really um so there's a lot of that going on and i think yeah the peloponnesian stories obviously work along the same ways i mean yeah. you can sort of you know i've talked about the the politics of it all and of course that's a part of it but i think mm -hmm. that's really just a small part of it and that's the bits that sometimes end up in the in the written record mm, but underneath mm -hmm. it all is well whatever you know hello women telling stories to little spartan kids it's yeah. all that kind of stuff that must be going on all the time and yeah. it's such a pity we don't have it but those stories must have been rounded out in a way mm -hmm. by that over the centuries and it sort of makes me feel good about it i i, mm. I like that notion of you know the many little kids on someone's knee listening to why are we here <laughs> why are we doing this why are we so weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love the idea that there were women telling stories particularly like alternates to say hesiod or something mm. you know like this one that we have that obviously explains a lot and provides so much context that I think we would, you know, we would be really lost without it. But at the same time, there's so many things in there where you're like, yeah, there was definitely, there had to have been a lot of women telling better versions of these stories, or, you know, or just like ones where, where women have like personalities and, and, you know, things like that. Well, the interesting thing is, of course, that there have been people who have been kind of wondering, you know, how much, female input there was into the mm. many, many generations of uh, Homeric poetry. Mm -hmm. Because there you do get the mm -hmm. female yeah. characters and you get perspectives that are quite mm -hmm. surprising and so on. And perhaps that is actually a good example because anyone who could spin a few good verses could have had their work end up in that sort of bulk of tradition because mm -hmm. I don't know, I always assumed those kind of bards, uh, for want of a better word, I mean, who went around, they would have picked up any good verse that they could find. And, you know, mm -hmm. if it was good enough, they would have plonked it into their latest version of whatever they were singing. And who knows, you know? Yeah. But it, it is interesting that that oral poetry actually pays attention to women very differently from. Some of the other stuff, although, of course, some yeah. of he the Hesiotic poetry must have been the result of something like this as well. And it seems much more yeah. sort of misogynist, and, um, yeah. much more bound in a sort of tradition that, yeah, feels much more sort of typically later Greek. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, I mean, yeah, female storytellers, I mean, they always seem to be just beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the some of the myths are quite subversive in some ways. But also local stories where women really play a role. Um, mm -hmm. Where, I mean, in Sparta, you've got, I think it's a temple of Eleithia. I can't remember, mm -hmm. but, you know, a woman who actually comes from Messenia after the conquest and insists in being, in having it made a temple. And, mm -hmm. and you know, we've, you've got some, some of the wives of the kings who are involved in some of these processes and so on. So, mm -hmm. and... Sometimes you wonder about local stories. Why is this sanctuary here? I mean, those tiny local stories, not which haven't gone through the hands of a big poet and haven't turned into a work that rich men buy and read. You know, women play a different role in some of this, some of the mm -hmm. small local stories. 
a priestess who is rescues something. I mean, sometimes she also is responsible for burning the temple town. I mean, it, but you know, women have more agency in some of those local stories. And again, yeah. I wonder, you know, the many stories that are told locally, the many why questions, and and somehow, yeah, they are. There was less of a need of pinning them down into a format that fits the written the written work, I think. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, I mean, Posenius writes them down, but that's so late and he goes around and, I mean, I think he very deliberately collected stuff that were quite rough around the edges. And mm-hmm. I think that's deliberate because he wants to show, I've been there, I've listened to it, and that's very much his thing. So he doesn't want to mm-hmm. make sure that it all fits the written template and it's it says the same as Euripides said or whatever. I mean, the writer says, well, I picked up this story here and it says the opposite of what Euripides hmm. is saying. I mean, that's his point. So I think that's why we have a better chance of actually picking up some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And some of this stuff shaped by, well, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think some of the Attic drama, I mean, clearly it digs into myths that everyone knew. But it's also clear that those myths then get shaped by the author. I mean, with some of the Euripidean ones, I mean, Euripides Medea is very, very obviously not the same character that she was in local versions. And again, Pausanias has a slightly different one. Really? Um, oh. Where she doesn't kill her, her own children. Yeah. Um, and the locals stone them. And oh. but but there must have been different versions, and I mean Euripides clearly sensationalizes it. I mean he yeah. makes her a fantastically interesting character. Yeah. But you know, I mean Attic drama follows the needs of that author who needs to bring the story to a really cool point that wins prizes. I mean you know, and mm. and they are not at all in any way shy about changing the story. They really aren't. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're clearly, there were different versions of Oedipus. And of course, mm-hmm. we know the absolutely amazing one by Sophocles, but clearly there were other ones and the story mm-hmm. didn't always quite go. I mean, the main outline is the same, but all sorts of things can change. And, mm-hmm. you know, things were made much more outrageous and, and, and so on. So I think I don't really trust, I mean, I love Attic drama, but I really don't mm-hmm. trust it to tell me the stories as they were told. Mm-hmm. Now, and I mind that at the patient, I'm not a purist pretty much in any field, I have to say. I'm okay with adaptations if they're good. But, and I think, you know, Euripides adaptations are brilliant. Oh, I love But that. yeah, he's absolutely amazing. And, you know, in many ways, he probably made some of these stories, I mean, yeah, I mean, he just made them so, so much deeper and those characters are amazing. But mm-hmm. they're not necessarily what, what there was i mean you know mm-hmm. and and so often these plays work like clockwork and actually the story that's told locally really doesn't i mean you're filling in these gaps and you're making it all work and mm-hmm. you have to make sure that it all comes to head at the same time in front of the same building i mean that's not how <laughs> a local story works i mean these guys mm-hmm. were geniuses in plotting mm-hmm. and in character shaping but actually the local character the local story with the character you know, it doesn't really give them big speeches why exactly they do that and what it feels like. I mean, that's brilliant about Euripides, obviously, uh, particularly. But the local story is quite different. So so actually, the shape of what it says and how it fits into its local context, so all this Theban stuff, for example, that the Athenians adapted, 
Who knows <laughs> yeah. what that looked like in Thebes? Yeah. And, you know, I yeah. love what the Athenians did with it. I really, really do. But it's not the local myth as it was told and as we probably should understand it mm-hmm. uh, in a local context. And And sometimes, you know, I read scholarship and people build all sorts of notions of, of you know, local history and local identity on what Sophocles was saying. And I'm thinking, mm. no, that's an adaptation. It's mm-hmm. a brilliant adaptation for that point of time i mean you can do amazing things for example the way aeschylus is using myths of argos and look at the politics of the time and you really see how argive athenian relations are kind of reflected in that i mean that works Mm -hmm. but how those stories were told in argos who knows Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think i i think that's so so the way literature relates to to the actual local stories is tricky and mm-hmm. perhaps I'm putting too much trust in Pausanias, and he's of course <laughs> awfully, awfully, awfully late. <laughs> but I like that about Pausanias because he he gives us some of these unpolished stuff that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But once you think, how does that fit in locally? You realize, oh, actually, yeah. I mean, that's really meaningful there. It's mm-hmm. not a beautiful story. The characters aren't really worked out. But perhaps some local poet did it at some point. We just don't have it. We don't have local mm-hmm. poets from Megara. I mean, unfortunately, I'd love to know what they said about yeah. everything the neighbors were doing to them. But, you know, or, you know, local poets from Thebes or, you know, wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, the, the nature of that material is quite, quite tricky. But at the same time, I think that makes it amazing and interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I like to keep those storytellers, you know, the women with kids on their knee. Oh, mm-hmm. but also, you know, not just women, grandfathers, fathers, everyone really. Mm-hmm. Just normal people, normal people. Yeah. But lots of enslaved people. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. You know, lots of, lots of elite people, like in Sparta. You know, those families. Who knows? I mean, who brought mm-hmm. up those kids? But mostly helots, presumably. Mm-hmm. And how would they tell those stories? Mm-hmm. And you know, would they be punished if they told them wrong? I mean, we don't hmm. know. We know nothing. We know absolutely nothing how this relationship would have worked. Mm-hmm. And who tells the stories to whom? And who who they belong to? And you know, what they mean to different people. Yeah. So so they're really complex kind of. Yeah, they're complex dynamics behind absolutely everything, which we can just assume. But I like sort of spinning out this stuff out although we know nothing about it <laughs> i think about this stuff constantly and Fantastic. looking at just yeah imagining imagining what other people would have said that we don't have and why one story is you know missing this gap that that you just want to explain or all these things or specifically i think about thebes a lot because like you're saying you know like we have the the attic drama and and so often it paints thebes as this place where like all of the wildest stuff is happening like the the things happening in Thebes like that poor city state it's just a disaster between all the takes on the seven against Thebes and mm. and you know Bacchae and and um and Oedipus it's like okay that place is a mess you know so you got to imagine like what did they say in Thebes did they see themselves as a mess? Did they have all these other stories and I think about that for for Heracles as well being from there you know, but they didn't, well, we don't have necessarily a lot of record of them tying themselves to him as much as, say, Sparta, like you're saying. Um, but even like they, you know, they have their own 
founding hero Cadmus who also is like missing from a lot of sourcing I'm fascinated by him because of how little there is but how powerful he was so I think about him very it's specifically a, a lot fantastically interesting hero also his yes. roots oh my god he's and my all-time favorite and yeah. he's the only hero who marries a goddess Harmony is the only goddess who just like lives as a mortal and it's just sort of there and and the goddess of the daughter of Olympians. It's a whole thing. I could think about Cadmus and Yeah, and he is, <laughs> he's the grandfather of gods. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this I is mean, just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> he marries a goddess. They, they like, yeah, Dionysus is two, <laughs> two generations down. Like, it's just, it's such a story. Yeah. yeah. But also, Thebes is somehow the start, the beginning of Thebes, but generally the stories of Thebes, as we have them, are a lot more warlike than Sparta. Mm-hmm, and that's mean, true. You know, you've got the you've got the dragon seed and all that yeah. kind of stuff. These warriors sprung from the soil. Now you know not all of them survived the fight or whatever, but you yeah. know that key that's clearly part of the ancestry of Thebes. Mm-hmm. You'd expect that to be the ancestors of Sparta, but no. And they even call the Sparta Spartaway, you know. Yeah, that's but, so true. Yeah, but no. I mean, it's the Thebans, and then this whole story about the big fight about Thebes with the seven yeah. against Thebes and. Yeah, and you know you'd expect you know the Spartans have two royal houses which clearly come out of a conflict, but do the two brothers make war against each other? No, they don't. It's the Thebans yeah. who do. So in a way, it's the the Theban, the warlike kind of stories. Because I really thought about this, you know, as uh, after we we had our email exchange about this, you know, can I think about anything? You know where where are the like sort of ancestor stories? And he yeah. kept he kept putting me back to Thebes. Yeah, I mean you know those are stories that would be perfect for Sparta and like the Spartans <laughs> yeah. out of three hundred. You yeah. think them to have that kind of ancestry, and you yeah. know that's not them at all. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I mean, and yeah, I mean the Theban version of all of this must have been. Yeah, yeah somewhat different. I mean, and again, how much of it is changed? I mean, even whatever. Even so many of the details, I mean, clearly quite a lot of the conflict that we know of the story of Antigone is literally made up by Sophocles for this one Mm -hmm. thing. It's fantastic. I'm sure it was, (laughs) you know, the original story was not as full of tension and philosophical thought and whatever. But yeah, no, it's, but it's interesting. I mean, they are, they Mm -hmm. are really the warlike people and actually, yeah, Heracles is theirs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all of this. So so the Thebans really should be. So yeah. should be that that kind of heroic people. Yeah. Yeah. So Sorry. so it's it's very interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't always, and of course, I mean, in some ways, Thebes. If you'd ask the other Boeotians, they may have well have thought of the Thebans as you know the constantly aggressive. We don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the history may well suggest that. Um, perhaps not, but you know, we don't know that mm-hmm. much. But you know, it might actually the warlike kind of character of the place may well fit the regional the regional profile that they've got mm-hmm. um, the Athenians would of course never have quite gone along with this because for them that's not the Thebes they want to see mm-hmm. um, perhaps but but yeah uh, there must have been quite a there must have been a, a fairly easy way of getting quite a heroic kind of past out of those stories that we see yeah. but as you say in the Athenian versions, it is a it 
crazily messy place <laughs> yeah. and, and wildness and lack of civilization and yeah. cruelty and everything is just around the corner in Thebes mm. all the time and their royal house is just so messed up it's just like <laughs> so yeah I mean that's yeah. I mean I guess that what happens if you're happens if you're not very friendly neighbor gets hold of your stories yeah, yeah really <laughs> yeah it is interesting to think about it in relation to sparta though because and i I think the overall answer to all of this is just that like i mean and and it is exactly why i'm doing this series on sparta is that you know they weren't inherently militaristic they didn't think of themselves as these epic warriors who were better than everyone else and and so it, it, it sort of all comes back to that because yeah there there is no like you know, super militaristic warrior sense of their in their origin story. There, there isn't any of that, and it all comes later, and then you know gets amplified over generations and generations up till now. But it is so interesting. But I hadn't considered how much Thebes does fit that exact funny, story. It? Yes, yeah, it's my favorite place. So I should. Well, I know all the stories, but I've never thought about it that way. That's interesting. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I, I can't make sense of it. I mean, I don't know whether one can mm-hmm. make sense of it, but it is. Yeah, I mean. They they are they've got a real warrior story, mm-hmm. um, so so yeah. Um, not sure. I mean, even you know, yeah. If one thinks of, I mean, people like Antigone. I mean, she doesn't quite go to war, but nevertheless, I mean, you know, they're they. I mean, okay, perhaps that's just Sophocles, but you know, there are some very heroic people also among their women mm-hmm. and. Well, and some women just go wild and tear people apart with, <laughs> with their bare hands and whatever. But yeah, it's, it's, it, and you know, in Hawaii, perhaps also, although Spartans always thought us very sort of rough and old fashioned and not very polished, I don't think they saw themselves as that either. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the image is probably a bit old fashioned. I mean, like almost all aristocrats quite you know sort of hanker after the old days and the old ideals and the spartans just (laughs) got to live that but they thought of themselves i think as the perfect gentleman and it's Mm. not i mean being a good warrior if necessary is obviously part of that if you Mm -hmm. need to take your spear you you know you you've trained in the stadium for long enough and you've got your perfect body with your perfect six-pack and you can go (laughs) off and grab your shield and do a good job yeah, And, you know, you appreciate your state and your community enough that you won't run away because, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the warrior ideals are kind of a subset of, of a much sort of bigger, yeah, notion of the perfect, the perfect aristocrat, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of, that kind of ideal. And that's where the Dioscori fit in, particularly. Mm. Um, it's much more that kind of ideal, I think. Uh, the perfect young man who, you know, yeah, if if the the sort of need arises, he'll go out and fight, and mm-hmm. but also he'll help people in need, and you know that's what the Dioscuri do a lot of that, mm-hmm. and so on. I mean, there, there's stuff like that. I mean, obviously, just people who deserve it. I mean, you know, you're not thinking yeah. about just anybody. I mean, mm-hmm. all of this is very much, you know, defined by class and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, I think the Spartan ideal is much more going in that direction mm-hmm. and much more of a sense of kings and 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 so on. I mean, it's a sort of sense perhaps that it's a place that's closer to what men used to be like. It, I'm, I'm sure that kind of stuff 
was definitely the case and was played mm. out. And even that, you know, they didn't follow the fashion of cutting your hair short when that happened. <laughs> but, you know, again, that happens around the Persian Wars. And that's the period when the Spartans decide, no, 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 we'll, we'll stick to, to the old ways. But, you know, mm. I mean, when we also hear that old-fashioned Athenian aristocrats still had long hair. Um, in the fifth century and hmm. the Spartans did that too. I mean, you know, it's much more, yeah, it's much more kind of traditional aristocratic kind of ideal mm-hmm. than, than perhaps, you know, straightforward, the kind of, you know, ancient equivalent of Rambo. I mean, that's, that's yeah. not where we're going <laughs> at yeah. all, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh. Well, this is all being so incredibly fascinating. I've kept you so much longer than I, I told you oh, I would, but fun. thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad. This has been so great. Oh, I'm very happy you enjoyed it. I mean, it's just, you know, I I can talk Greek myths till the cows come home, I'm afraid. So so can I. It's better, you, better you stop me. <laughs> but it's just lovely to be able to talk to the myth person out there. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> No, you do so much to really inform people and, you know, give them give them a good sense of their stuff without losing a sense of fun. I think that's really important and it's brilliant. So, yeah. Thank you. That's exactly what I try to do. So I'm glad to know it's working. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, and you, your link goes out with my, with my myth module, I can tell you. Oh, good. <laughs> so, thank you. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's funny looking back on, on how I do things now, but now I'm like, now these episodes are really good for that kind of thing. The early ones, maybe less so, but past but, couple you of know, years, yeah, good stuff. It's, it's kind of... No, it doesn't really matter because, again, Mm. it shows different ways of dealing with it. And certainly when I talk to the students about it, you know, how many different angles can we find on this? That's really important. And, you know, you had a different way in at the beginning. And, of course, now you've been doing it for a while. You've been talking to lots of people and read up on everything. And, you know, obviously you approach it differently now. But... Mm -hmm. I think all of that works. Yeah. And and I think it's important to know that myths aren't just, I mean, there are an academic pursuit, but not just. Yeah. Those stories aren't owned by anyone. And, you know, I'm, I'm just as happy if people come to myths. And again, with our students, a lot of it happens very often, you know, come to myths having started with some very popularized version that's very different and, you know, doesn't matter whether it's Percy Jackson and I'm sure very soon we'll get Greek, more Greek gods from Marvel. Um, mm-hmm. Even if they're in a shape of Russell Crowe, everything goes, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> and, you know, it's, and, you know, that's not, that wasn't your level at the beginning either. But, you know, I think the great thing is that these things are still so malleable and you mm-hmm. there's so many different things you can do with them and people come at them or come across them in a particular way and it could be all sorts of things and then work their way in and you know so we get different perspectives i i think that's yeah. and i hope it goes on like this i mean i think that's yeah. a brilliant thing about greek myths because there are yeah, I mean, there, there's so many facets to them. And I know that my approach mostly via Pausanias is just one <laughs> way of doing it. But yeah, yeah, that happened to be my way in, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. Yeah, I mean, just seeing it that way. And then I, I like watching from, you know, how long, how much I've grown, but also looking at 
how long I've been doing this, how many episodes I have, and how much I'm not remotely close to being out of content. <laughs> because like, there is just so much and so many variations and so many different places to dig in and look at weird new things. And, you know, it really is. Yeah, it's endless. And it's clearly so much fun too <laughs> and i'm just i'm i'm just assuming that as long as the telegony doesn't turn up you're not finished no exactly the telegony will never to, turn up if you ever get to the last episode that'll be it because then you'll you run out and just you like, have to do it <laughs> i feel like i feel like that would be like that would be me just burning it all down at the very end <laughs> just like taking my entire legacy and setting it on fire <laughs> I wonder whether Pseudo Apollodorus wanted to do that because it's literally the last paragraph. Is it really? I yeah, didn't know the that. work ends That's with great. it, or the last three paragraphs, or whatever. But you know, it literally ends there. So That's perhaps he thought the same thing. Right. That's yeah. it. I've Burn told you everything, down. and now I'm burning it all down. But you know, you you'll never get to that end. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> no I just love that we agree on the telegony. Oh my god. Same. I, yeah. <laughs> I truly it is I, I actually recently edited an episode where I fully edited out a reference I made to it in a conversation because I was like I don't even want my listeners to google it like this one right. I won't edit out because it's too funny they'll just have to I'm never going to tell them about it and they should know just don't google it because you'll you'll like your life will be forever changed well, for the worse. you'll have to you'll have to figure it out whether my my random segue into it just to go <laughs> Perhaps you you should keep it a secret. Oh yeah, I mean no, you know I mean, icky bad fan fiction. I mean you know ugh. how far do you want to go? <laughs> I mean it's funny because immediately after you referenced fan fiction of like oh like a weird ship or something you know <laughs> shipping odd characters and it's like that's exactly what it is. I guess yeah yeah, yeah it's whew. no 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 no. I'm no, afraid no. I do mention it to my students and do you? they themselves have exactly the same reaction. Yeah, I mean anyone who's ever seen bad shippy fat fiction no, yeah, this is it <laughs> this is it <laughs> and the greeks weren't immune to it and yeah in a way no. i want them to know you know the, the, there's always this sense that the greeks were sort of above everything and oh, they were yeah, so no 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 no, no. <laughs> yeah, they no, could no, do no. bad shippy fan fiction they could do absolutely any kind of crap you could imagine most of it isn't <laughs> preserved but here is a bit of it <laughs> yeah uh, this is the one thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it well thank you it was so much fun yeah, oh, we've I'm gone so over the plan yeah. time. I hope you're okay with this. Oh, you've absolutely. Got, it's great. We've got a day ahead of you, so <laughs> yeah. enjoy that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, is there anywhere, do you want to share anything with my listeners, anywhere to follow you on social media or read more or anything like that? Oof. Um, I mean, on Posenius, I mean, I've written a book on Posenius, which That's is Posenius Travel Writing in Ancient Greece, if people, which sort of sets out some of these these ideas about him uh that might be quite useful i guess um i am on twitter i don't tweet many mythological things but now and then um i think you've got me on twitter yeah i'll put Uh, it in the episode's description but yeah i mean as you know my twitter isn't very mythological and very much retweets my department mostly (laughs) but who knows i'm i might change that as my research goes on and gets a bit closer to the publication of the big book i'll probably Mm. get it more peloponnesian so so yeah um i think that's that's pretty much it i suppose
nerds. Thank you for listening, as always. Now, I did keep all of the talk about the telegony in the episode, but I want to point out that I did not tell you what the telegony actually is, and I will not be doing so now because it is a disaster. It is a travesty. It is a crime. Do yourselves a favor and live in ignorance of it. (laughs) All right. Well, that was just the first in our Sparta conversations, but what a way to start. I originally wasn't going to start with Maria's episode, but it provided so much great and broad context when it comes to the Peloponnese and the history of Sparta, let alone all of that vital mythology that we talked about and just so much more. Plus, I mean, it was so much fun. So were the others, don't get me wrong. Every episode on this series is so much fun and I've got it all coming at you soon. But I will say those are uh, also shorter episodes. So we just really couldn't stop ourselves in this case. And so, you know, where better to start? As always, thank you for listening. You are the best. If you're enjoying this special series on Sparta, please consider leaving me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify if that's where you listen. But all the same, thank you for listening because it certainly helps. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things. For this series, Michaela gets an extra special shout-out because while she is always helpful and helps me with anything I ever need, she also prepared an incredible amount of research for this series on Sparta. I am talking everything I could ever need, including helping me on scripts. Oh, what a lifesaver. Michaela is the official researcher for this series. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. You were all the best. Thank you. I am Liv and oh gods, I love this shit. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. 
Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 